Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. To begin our coverage, we are honored to bring you worldwide John Lipsky, of course, with Solomon Brothers. Uh, for years, he was having a mundane day at the IMF a few years ago, and they said, would you like to lead us in the interim? And so he became the uh, first deputy managing director, but really running the whole, whole place. What was it like, that shift? That was a delicate period for this institution. What was your message to all of the international uh, monetary fund as you took over as interim director? Well, it, I was quite calm at the time. There were tremendous challenges uh, to the world economy. You were and, distracted. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. But what, what I was confident about, the fund has a fantastically talented and dedicated staff, a membership that wanted us to succeed and needed us to succeed mm -hmm. and was going to be supportive. So I knew that we right. were going to be able to meet the challenges. I look at you as almost crafting with Steve Roach and, and, and others the modern economic market report, messaging to Wall Street and Solomon clients, this is what we believe, this is what we would suggest. The IMF does it with the blue book. How did you assist Olivia Blanchard and, and others, uh, Simon Johnson and others, how did you assist in having PhDs put together the guesstimates within the blue book? Well, First of all, can I mention I did spend some time at J.P. Morgan. But now, I should mention that as well. Excuse me. It's early but, in the morning. Exactly. But also, uh, really, the IMF has the largest staff of Ph.D. economists in one place at one time with fantastic experience and dedication. And to put together those World Economic Outlook forecasts in the, in the entire uh, country-facing staff is engaged, as well as the research department, it's, a, it's quite an impressive process. John, we've got a number of topics this morning. Let's, let's go back 20 years. You wrote a paper at the time on what we're all talking about now, which is the new definition of globalism. And we know after Doha, WTO, and the other challenges of trade, let alone the challenges of the rhetoric of Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Trump, trade is in trouble big time. Help us with globalization and this odd phrase regionalism in 2016. Yes, indeed. Well, back at the publication you're referring to, back in 97, I wrote a piece that said globalization is regionalization. As I wrote back then, if you ask the data, is the world becoming more globalized, the answer was yes. But if you ask it, is the world becoming more regionalized, the answer was yes. And nowhere was that more true than in Asia, where trade linkages, financial linkages were growing rapidly. And what was lacking was some kind of a regional institutional structure to help make that work and would fit into the global structure. And are I those would, structures there today? No, I would say they are still in the process of formation. I want you to sell to the good people of Ohio, the FT yesterday, with a beautiful analysis of one county of Ohio. Let's call that the battleground state. Everybody seems to be against TPP, this, that, and the other thing. Sell to the people of Ohio right now why they need international trade. 
you need international trade because that has been the, motiv the principal motivating force behind the 60-year span of unprecedented economic growth in the post-World War II era that has benefited the United States as much as anybody. The data is clear that trade is, is and in the aggregate is employment creating, is wealth creating. Uh, what we recognize that in a period of slower growth, we have to worry about taking care of losers as well as winners. But in the aggregate, the message is absolutely crystal clear. And interference with trade flows, uh, frankly, the last time that was tried with some vigor, the result was the Great Depression. I mean, with, within the economic growth is also political quiet as part of trade. Trade leavens relationships. We know that from London to Antwerp 500 years ago. It smooths things out. Do you worry about not only financial instabilities, but global political instabilities? Of course, there's an interrelationship, and you'll find, for example, in the World Economic Outlook, uh, concern that political factors could be in, in, this pro in a process of potentially interfering with the, uh, with the strength of the global economy. John Lipsky with us as we begin our coverage from the offices of the International Monetary Fund. Again, looking at the markets, quiet markets, a little weight to the futures, negative four, negative five. I know Sterling weaker uh, this morning trying to get to a 126 handle. Help us with negative rates. Bowder of Citigroup, Willem Bowder, Ken Rogoff and others suggest they are a constructive force. Do they ignore what negative rates do in the short and medium term to financial institutions? Well, I wouldn't say they ignore it, but they, certainly the focus on uh, monetary policy is short-term <clears throat> stimulus. I don't think anyone is maintaining the idea that negative real interest rates or negative rates in absolute terms over an extended span of time is good or reasonable for economic policy. It suggests imbalance, but importantly, as you suggest, that over an extended period of time, very low rates will impair the profitability and sustainability of key financial institutions that make the economy and work. If I go to the global travel that you did, I'm sure you got the frequent flyer miles from the IMF. You went to Hanoi with one of your original speeches. I remember you speaking about macroprudential risk. To me, the the lack of ortho, I mean, this wasn't in your Stanford textbooks. No, I, I, this <laughs> no stuff this. that we're thinking about now has a global impact away from large institutions that are affected by negative rates. Oh, absolutely. And you'll find in the IMF's Global Financial Stability Report that was released yesterday, a, as they said, the near-term outlook has improved in the financials for, with regard to financial stability, but the medium-term outlook is riskier. And one of the reasons is because sustained low interest rates is undermining the profitability and hence sustainability of key institutions, not just banks or investment right. banks, but insurance companies and pension funds. You're a great student of history. I think of, I believe it was Carradine, uh, a one-volume uh, on Andrew Mellon uh, in the 1930s. Then it was a time of consolidation yeah. and combination. Is that where we are now? Tepid nominal GDP, the IMF leads with weak demand front and center. Do you just assume industrial and bank consolidation? Well, it's, it's, there are so many cross currents here, it's not completely clear. After all, one of the salient developments of recent days, and one you just mentioned, is Brexit and uh, what that may do to the structure of European financial institutions and markets. So that 
potentially could uh, right. could work the other way. On the other hand, it's clear we've seen the emergence, don't forget, of giant Chinese uh, financial institutions who are now coming into world markets. So it's a uh, it's a complicated uh, it's a complicated uh, outlook. Very quickly here on Brexit, is Brexit about London and the United Kingdom? Or is Brexit really about the response of European leaders? Well, it's it's certainly about both. In in the UK, the concern, of course, is where does that leave the UK in the in the European and in the global economy? In the EU, much more important and much more pressing is what is this going to do for European institutionalization? And how can we provide? How can the European Union well, provide a, a much much greater success? Well, I'm Michael McKee in New York. Tom Keene is in Washington for the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. And joining him in Washington this morning is John Lipsky, the former deputy managing director of the IMF, now a consultant to the organization. Uh, you're talking about uh, U.S. domestic politics in the, in the first section, John. Uh, I want to broaden it out a little bit to global politics and uh, global economics. We're talking about maybe the U.S., and you see it in, the, in most of the numbers, the U.S. stabilizing, if not getting better, in terms of growth over the next couple of years. But can we continue to see improvement here and around the world if the banking system around the world is still troubled? And I know in the IMF's Global Financial Stability Report yesterday, they raised questions about where we are. That's right. And not just about the banking system, but more broadly, the financial system uh, worries about the, the, uh, the stability of insurance and pension funds if there is a sustained period of such low uh, long-term interest rates that don't provide the kind of return necessary uh, that uh, underpins, that would, be un that would be necessary to underpin those institutions. So I think it's absolutely right. And you can see that the European Union's uh, economy has lagged behind, especially in per capita terms, has lagged behind uh, other economies, other uh, advanced economies since the 2008-2009 uh, the period. And part of that, obviously, as the fund emphasizes, is the, uh, the problems and weakness in the European banking system that still need to be addressed. Who can push them to do that? I mean, how do you get uh, a Deutsche Bank, a Bank of Bandipashki cleaned up? Well, remember, when this started, there weren't pan-European institutions that were uh, charged and able to address these issues directly. There have been a process of creating new European institutions to deal with these issues. For example, the European Stability Mechanism, the European Banking Authority and the Banking Union, uh, etc. The whole process of creating a financial markets union is still a work in progress. And of course, Brexit throws a real period of uncertainty into that con that construction. Dr. Lipsky, you know every corner of this building and the associated buildings around it. You also know the path to the White House. One of the great issues of this debate, eight, nine, ten years in, is the IMF is an institution for elites, not really for the public. And that's most expressed in financial repression. HSBC has come out with a lower for longer call to 2021. I haven't even done the math. That's too much math for me at this hour. I think that's, that's 14 years of financial repression from 07. How does the IMF and other institutions reach out to people 
crushed by financial repression. Well, the, of course, the IMF is, uh, uh, is a limited staff and a, and a limited and remit. a limited reach, I, I understand. Yeah. But, but we are trying, to, uh, the fund has uh, uh, made very significant efforts over the past few years to produce a message that is understandable, that is oriented towards a, a, at least the interested public, and has uh, greatly expanded their efforts at mm -hmm. explaining what they do and why. It's a dramatically more, trans not just a transparent institution, but makes a lot of effort to communicate. In fact, you're I, going to be talking to the managing director later today, and that's part I, of that I effort. I would agree to that, but Michael, I mean, I'm sorry, financial repression is like that one-year CD you just got, and the only reason you got it was you got a Denver Broncos toaster with it. <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't short out. <laughs> Uh, John, you know, when you look the at... The IMF takes no position on the NFL, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> or toasters, I would imagine. Uh, when you look at... Uh, or toasters. When you look at where we... Uh, let me just quickly ask you this. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about Asia in uh, this conversation. Let me just bring in China quickly. Correct. How... We were talking yesterday about how China was the story, and now nobody's talking about it. Is it coming back, or are we missing something here? <laughs> Mike, that's probably a little strong, but it's quite true. And, and if you read the, the fund documents, especially the WIO, addresses that directly, yep. that a year ago that was a, that was a big concern and the near-term concern is much less because the Chinese authorities have taken action that has resulted in a st apparent stabilization of growth. At the same time, the fund has been very clear that China faces a challenge in its uh, reform process in shifting the basis mm -hmm. of its economic growth towards services and consumption and away from exports and investment, and in the, that, that it also mm -hmm. is building up a very substantial amount of non-financial sector debt that, is, that poses a medium-term uh, challenge at best and potentially a threat to that process. Very, so there's lots to do. Well, very, very quickly here, unfortunately, too quickly, Dr. Well, let's leave it at this. We'll come back with Dr. Lipsky another time and talk to him about the inner developments of democracy at the IMF and the shift to Asia that many people have uh, predicted. Well, Tom Keene, uh, you are in Washington at the IMF annual meetings, and you're not allowed to talk here. Uh, <laughs> Mohammed and Al Arian and I have agreed that uh, because your Red Sox are still in the playoffs and our New York Mets were Very defeated good. last night, <laughs> that you are not allowed to gloat. Please do not mention the Boston Baseball Nine, uh, and we'll get along just fine. Uh, Ari, Very good. Uh, who is uh, the chief uh, economic advisor to Allianz and a Bloomberg View columnist is joining us here in the studios. We're both sitting Shiva for the Mets. The season is over. So let's move on and talk about the, the, the global economy and what's going on with the IMF, etc. cetera. Uh, banking in Europe, the big issue right now for kind of everybody. The world jumps around from issue to issue. This is the one now. Is this any better or any worse than any other of the concerns that keep the central banks uh, on hold and the markets uh, somewhat uh, nervous? It's among the top five concerns, and it speaks to two things. One is this is a very difficult environment for banking in general. Low interest rates, low growth, reg higher regulation, that's not something that, 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 that banks look forward to. 
but it also speaks to particular institutions that have lagged in building up capital and have lagged in dealing with their balance sheets. So it is among the top five. I wouldn't put it top. I wouldn't say this is a Lehman moment threat, but it is something that will slow growth in Europe. Uh, Dr. Larry, and right now we're seeing British pound implode. I mean, there's no other way to put it. We've gone from a 130 with a little bit of Brexit optimism down to a 128.7 and now well into a 126 territory. The zeitgeist is sterling, is acting in a discrete vacuum of United Kingdom politics and economics. I don't buy that for a minute. What are the knock-on effects of a brutal move in sterling for the rest of the system? So first, Tom, we should discuss this because I think what you're seeing in the UK speaks to two things. One is that there's now a sense that it could be a hard Brexit after all and not a soft Brexit, and that will mean a much weaker sterling. And second, the populist comments by Prime Minister Theresa May yesterday in which she criticized the Bank of England and in which she attacked the international elites uh, they're adding to this sense of repricing in the FX market. Where I do agree with you is that sterling is, the for, is at the forefront of the upcoming greater volatility in the FX segment, and that greater volatility will transmit to other market segments. Well, volatility, yes, but um, economic uh, danger. That is kind of the question. We just had the ECB minutes come out. Of course, that was the first week of September, but they said it was too early to tell. The Fed's been arguing it's too early to tell, and the numbers in Britain have not been bad yet. Uh, how much of a threat, uh, when you look out, how much of a threat is it going to be? So they haven't been bad because nothing has happened as yet. So whether you're a household or whether you're a company, you wait and see. If it ends up being a hard Brexit, the numbers will be bad. I keep on saying, imagine that you are on a plane and the pilot announces that they're going to change the engines in mid-flight. Because that's what is Brexit is. You're changing the engines of growth <clears throat> for the United Kingdom. Yeah. If you're on that plane, wouldn't you worry about losing altitude? And I think that that's <laughs> what's going to happen if indeed it is a hard Brexit. Uh, Dr. Larian, when, when, when I first came to the IMF meetings, I read through Ken Rogoff's monograph on 14 flavors of floating exchange rates. I get the idea that a floating rate environment leads to less shocks than a fixed exchange environment. But are we naive in believing we can avoid shocks because currencies compensate each and every moment? So a shock absorber can protect you to some extent, but not completely. Imagine that you're driving a car and you go into a massive pothole. Is it good that you have a shock absorber? Yeah. Will it stop major damage to the car? No. So a lot depends on how smooth or how bumpy the road is. And, and you're going to get a sense, I suspect, Tom, from being in D.C., and we're really glad you're there, you're going to get a sense that this is a pretty bumpy road because of political issues, because of the accumulation of debt yeah. without growth, and because policymakers are over-dependent on just one instrument, monetary policy, well, and that's becoming more ineffective. Dr. Larian, let me ask you about one policymaker. Given the blue book, the green book, the red book, what is a question you would ask Madame Lagarde this morning? So I would ask her, how do we reconcile concerns about debt, which tend to imply we need more austerity, with concern that fiscal policy is no longer contributing yeah. to economic growth? How do we reconcile 
these two very different signals. Because I yeah. think that is the challenge of the generation. The challenge is to get higher growth yeah. in order to overcome debt issues and make it more inclusive. We've got to turn our attention uh, to the political world. Uh, I've seen different notes this morning, just this morning. One analyst saying that we're starting to see the election priced into the markets and another saying there isn't much election risk in the markets. Uh, which do you think it is? And the, the kind of follow on is people sort of assume that if Donald Trump's elected, that's very bad for the markets. Whereas uh, the analyst who did see something in the market said it's, it's not so much Trump as it is uncertainty. So first, I think it's the latter in terms of the market hasn't priced in yet political risk and for understandable reasons. First is very binary, and markets are not good at pricing in binary risk. Second, rhetoric during a campaign doesn't always translate into actions. And third, and most importantly, the markets have been conditioned over and over again to expect central banks to come in and repress volatility. So when you have these three things there, markets will wait till they have better indications. As to the uncertainty, it's absolutely right. Mr. Trump has spoken of punishing tariffs on Mexico and China. If this were to occur, and it's a big if, because it means A, he has to be elected, and B, he has to move on, on, on this promise. If this were to occur, there will most likely be re retaliatory steps, and that will be bad for global growth. So it's that uncertainty that if it gets priced in, would lead to a lot more volatility in markets. Uh, the, uh, the counter argument is that um, if you can control the uncertainty around the Republican, that either one who wins has talked about fiscal stimulus. And so maybe the markets are not pricing in a better result in 2017 than, uh, than we currently expect. Yeah, I understand that argument. But for you to price in a better result than you currently expect because of fiscal stimulus, you're not really betting on the White House, you're betting on Congress. You're betting that we are going to get a Congress that can function, where both parties can come together. Alternatively, a single party dominates both houses. And I think most people expect that to be not to be likely. They think that's very unlikely. In the time that we've got left, Dr. O'Arian, I, I, I think I look at the realities that we face, and one of them is that Thor on the New York Mets ought to go over to the New York Giants and save the ship. Is that a reasonable prospect? So I was about to commend you on your decency for not mentioning the Mets. You have no idea. Uh, Mike and I were talking about this earlier this morning. Yes, we, are, we expected them to lose, and we expected them to lose in the ninth inning, and yet we are devastated. So I was hoping that, Tom, the decency that you showed up to now would prevail till, till the end of the show. All I can tell you is I'm suddenly Dr. a Cleveland Larry, Indian fan. <laughs> Dr. O'Larian, Mike, can you explain to me how a guy as smart as Dr. O'Larian is, one of the giants of international game theory, is lined up with the Mets and the Jets? How uh. can that be? <laughs> 
<laughs> there, there are some things, there are some uh, some math problems that have never been solved, Tom. <laughs> this may be one of them. Yes. Tom Keen is at the IMF meetings in Washington. Mohammed El Arian and I are sitting here in New York. We're sad, but for those of you on 960 in the Bay Area, congratulations to your San Francisco Giants. They move on. And the New York Mets go home. We're not even going to mention the Jets. That's kind of a that, that's a lost cause. Uh, and so we're not even going to talk about that. You want to talk Denver Broncos? We can do that. Mohamed Elarian, uh, thank you very much for joining us here today on Bloomberg Surveillance. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of four trillion dollars. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We are in Washington at the meetings of the International Monetary Fund. Michael McKee in New York. I'm Tom Keen. And coming up, our conversation with Madame Lagarde. I just spoke to her briefly, and we look forward to a good conversation. But first, a better conversation. Nicholas Stern made history in climate change with his public service to Prime Minister Brown and to the United Kingdom, and for that matter, the developed and uh, emerging market worlds. Lord Stern, uh, of course, in education at Cambridge and Oxford and his service to the London School of Economics uh, as well. Lord Stern, I want to get to climate change, but we must talk about a plunging sterling. Is there a naivete right now among politicians in your United Kingdom of the knock-on effects of their political rhetoric as we see sterling well below 127 this morning? I think what we saw this last week is the Conservative Party conference where the attitudes to immigration and thus also to trade uh, were made much more clear. Essentially, the more we control immigration, the less of a good deal the UK can get on trade with the European Union. And what we saw at the Tory party conference was a very strong emphasis on immigration and controlling immigration. And what that, I think, means, and where the markets are probably reading it, is that uh, we might get a worse deal on trade, and therefore our trade prospects right. are not so good, and we have to devalue to be competitive. You were the John Hicks professor at LSE. If we go back to the classic Hicks of 1939, five years before that, sterling was $5 to the pound. Come down to Harold Wilson, $2.80, $2.40, and we now find a plunging sterling. Not plunging in the last couple hours, I should say. I don't want to be inflammatory. Is it a wealth destruction to the United Kingdom? I think what we've seen in these uh, weeks and months now since the vote on Brexit is a re-evaluation of the UK's growth prospects and its role in the world. And the more difficult our trade deal with the EU, um, the more we're going to have to devalue to stay competitive with what is... Uh, our biggest market, which is the EU. And I think that's the story of the last few months. The very long-run story is, of course, the UK declining in importance in the world, that sterling 
used to be a very, very powerful currency, a bit like, you know, if you've got dollars. Right. Now, if you've got dollars, you can buy things around the world. At that time, if you had sterling, you could buy things around the world. So the very long-run story, I think, is a, a declining role of the UK in the world economy, plus, of course, long periods of quite rapid inflation in the UK, which erodes the value of your currency. To change the climate change, of course, your major work right now, you took a lot of criticism, including from Prime Minister Brown, about the stridency of the Stern report. You look back now, I'm sorry, you look pretty smart. Are we really going to be able to take a boat across the Arctic Circle soon? Is there enough of an ice melting on the Arctic Circle to make you look particularly prescient years ago? Uh, in the Stern Review, I said the costs of inaction, the costs of allowing climate change just to roar away, were much bigger than the costs of action. And I think that primary message of the Stern Review, I probably underdid it. I think that the risks from climate change. I think so. I think the risks from climate change are still bigger than we thought then, and actually the costs of action. Well, look, it, it looks actually that there are benefits of action, even if you forget about climate change. Right. Cities where you can move, cities where you can breathe, cities where you can be productive, ecosystems that don't mm. fall apart. I think actually the new path that we see of how to do things differently, and right. we see it much better since 10 years ago, is very attractive. Right. And that's what drove the Paris Agreement. Let me People bring, saw that. Well, the Paris Agreement really front and center with the recent moving forward on that. Let me bring in my colleague in New York, Michael McKee. Mike? Uh, thank you, Tom. Um, to quote uh, one of the presidential candidates here in the United States, coulda, woulda, shoulda, <laughs> an old remark by Hillary Clinton, uh, you, shoulda, you should do this stuff. But if it doesn't happen, uh, what happens? What did you find in, in your report? Can you, can you lay out the case uh, for doing it? The case for acting strongly on climate change has got two big uh, elements to it. One is that we need to operate much more efficiently. We've got cities which are congested, cities which are polluted, great wastages of energy, we can grow much better and in a much more healthy and attractive way if we act strongly to curb the use of fossil fuels. The second strand in the argument is that climate change is really dangerous. It will um, disrupt our economies, it will lead to desertification in some places, extreme weather events uh, much more intense in others, sea level rise. This will lead to movement of people on a grand scale. So the risks of climate change are really very big. And that's the other part of the gain of doing things differently in a much lower carbon, much more efficient way, is that we avoid those big risks. So they're two big arguments, and they're both very powerful. One of the arguments against it that is powerful, at least in the U.S. politically, in a number of states, is that as you scale back on carbon fuels, you scale back on jobs. You are going to have to manage change. This is, of course, a different way of doing things. But the jobs in energy efficiency, the jobs in, renew in renewables, the jobs in recreating our cities are much, much more numerous, much uh, larger number mm -hmm. of those jobs 
than you would be losing from the scaling back on fossil fuels. But you've got to, you've got to manage change. You've got to treat people decently. You've got to give them a chance. If you're just joining us, uh, Lord Stern uh, uh, with us right now with the London School of Economics and, of course, an important new report, the Sustainable Infrastructure Imperative. I'd like you to fix 58th Street in New York City. Uh, maybe if you could do it by Friday, that would be good. I'll do my best, Tom. We have an austerity in infrastructure. Everyone writes about it. There's been a great set of articles. Public, the public, the American public, and even I would say in a city like Mumbai, they're reticent to take on debt right now, even with low interest rates, for big projects. Where's the vision? That is hesitancy is a mistake. We've got interest rates on the floor, or actually below the, the floor, right. and we've got a great growth story that we can see, infrastructure to fix. We can do it in a way that's much more sustainable, much more attractive. We really should be investing around the world very strongly in infrastructure now. And that's the big story of our report. It's the growth story of the shorter run, the best way of rekindling demand. It's going to set up all kinds of innovation and discovery in the medium term. And it is the only growth story on offer in the longer term sure. because high carbon attempt at high carbon growth self-destructs. So this is absolutely the moment, rich countries and poor countries, to be investing very strongly in infrastructure. Michael? If we invest in infrastructure, is there a multiplier you can put on that that uh, would suggest what kind of additional benefit you get other than, I mean, obviously we need to tame climate change, but uh, to the economy to counter the arguments that it costs jobs and it hurts people? Uh, it actually creates jobs. Uh, investing in, uh, in much better structures in our cities for roads, um, investing in energy, investing in sustainable energy, energy efficiency, all these are labor-intensive activities which have a very strong employment, there's a big multiplier there, but on top of that they enable people to operate their lives in a much more efficient way. It's less congested, less polluted, they're more productive. So there are two big multipliers there, one through mm. the creation of the infrastructure and the other is the services the infrastructure delivers. Lord Stern, in the time that we have left, you have been one of the great educators on economics, certainly with your decades at the London School of Economics. Do you face the urgency of other academics that we need a new style, a new method, even a less mathy way of teaching adult economics? I, I certainly do. I think that looking back, we've had a rather, particularly in the 1990s, we had a rather narrow, simplistic view where all markets mm -hmm. are competitive, all markets exist, and all markets clear, and all individuals understand all the information that's coming at them. And at LSE was one of them that really pushed against this. Yeah, and uh, I have, my colleague Meghna Desai, quite a group of us at LSE have uh, argued that this is a much too simplistic and dangerously simplistic way mm -hmm. of looking at things. Because if you think everything works perfectly and people look at their information strongly, you don't see the bad things coming and you lose creativity as well. Very good, Lord Stern. Thank you so much. Nicholas Stern, of course, on climate change and also on his uh, United uh, Kingdom. Monetary Fund headquarters, their annual meetings, always an important discussion with Christine Lagarde, uh, but most importantly, Francine, to line it up to talk about Brexit, the changes, Sterling, much weaker this morning, and the issues of debt, 
as I saw it on the cover of the FT this morning, the $150 trillion number, still banking and the dynamics of global banking, and particularly European banking, are front and yeah, center. Yeah, if you look around the world, Tom, there's nothing rosy to write home about. But actually, I want to cut to the chase. First of all, welcoming uh, Madame Lagarde, the MD there of the IMF. But Madame Lagarde, if we cut to the chase, there's so much concern about Deutsche Bank. How much do you worry about it? You know, Deutsche Bank is a systemic institution and he is very strongly interrelated uh, with many other banking institutions around the world. Uh, we believe that Deutsche Bank, like many other banks, uh, has to look at its business model, which I'm sure it does because it is in the process of selling assets here and there, uh, has to look at its long-term profitability given the um, you know, lower bound interest rates that we have around the world and probably for longer than, uh, than many expect and decide you know, what size it wants to have and how it wants to strengthen its, uh, it, its uh, whole balance sheet. But it's not the only one uh, in, the, in the banking landscape to have to do that job. We believe that many banks have to look uh, and to do a bit of introspection into how they want to, to be. I would mention something else which has been made quite obvious this week. The digital banking is really hitting the radar screen in a big way. If you look at what ING announced a few days ago, this is going to happen to many banks, which will probably uh, move more in the direction of using digital tools, leveraging their technology platform, and probably as a result, cutting cost. Madame Lagarde, what you're talking there is a business model that we often talk about for a lot of these European banks. But do you think that institutions have to rush to find a settlement on Deutsche Bank in specific? And what happens if they don't? You know, I'm, I'm a lawyer by background, and I think that uh, a bad settlement is always better than a, a, good, uh, a good trial. We're not in a trial mode, clearly, in, in the case of uh, Deutsche Bank. But a settlement uh, would certainly be welcome because it would deliver some certainty as to what weight uh, the bank will have to, uh, to carry and whether it, it matches with its provision or not. So the sooner the better. Madam Lagarde, early in our collective financial crisis, you stood up at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington and was, was in search of adults in the room. For European banking in general, what this is about is the courage and the will to clear bad loans, NPLs, non-performing loans. How can the IMF assist Italian banks, German banks, banks in general, to find the courage to finally write down the balance sheet? Well, you know, Tom, that we have advocated for a long time that there be real banking union within the euro area. That would, there is a degree of banking union. Efforts have been made. It's not completed. There is not a fiscal backstop that would actually support a significant effort in, in reforming and, uh, and probably uh, right-sizing the system as, as, uh, as they are probably planning to do. So that's step number one. Step number two, we have to say things as we see them. And sometimes it's not welcome, uh, but if we see significant amounts and percentages of NPLs in balance sheets, mm -hmm. we have to say so. We do that privately in our bilateral discussions, and we do that publicly aggregating numbers because we never want to single out one particular institution versus the other. You will have noted that in our Global Financial Stability Report, we don't mention, we hardly mention any name, but we talk in general 
about what it's banks have. It's a craft of the IMF to do that. Do you see how they do that? They're very diplomatic. It's almost like Bloomberg surveillance, you know, back and forth that we have every day. <laughs> I think Madame Lagarde is, is far more diplomatic than we are. Um, is Europe overbanked? Do we need to consolidate banks? And actually, our regulators are, uh, you know, looking at that. I think that, you know, the findings of the GFSR is that even if uh, the economic situation improves, as we hope it will, if policymakers make the right decisions and move into action mode, there is still about 25% of the banking system that is not going to be prosperous. So that calls for re-examination, uh, the work that any business leader has to do looking at its business. With the time that we have with you today, this quote from the Green Report, the Financial Stability Report, and this speaks to Steve Major at HSBC looking for low rates and low rates out to 2021 in the yeah. FT today. This quote, the solvency of many life insurance companies and pension funds is threatened by a prolonged period of low interest rates. You've provided leadership on this on saying it's about duration, about the chronic nature of low rates. How do negative rates fold into this chronic sense of lack of return? It calls for re-examination of those two sectors as well, the insurance uh, sector and the pension fund sector. This is particularly true for the life insurance sector, Spe specifically in those countries where a, a level of return is prescribed by law. You know, in a country like Japan, for instance, uh, it's under the law required to actually serve uh, a particular level of return on those life insurance policies. So there is work to be done in those two sectors as well. I think they know it. Uh, they are doing the work probably a bit quietly at the moment, but uh, our duty is to say uh, there is urgency about it. Do you feel like a central bank policy is coming at the end of the line? And how difficult is it for government to pick it up when we're so indebted? I, d I just want to uh, call a little bit of caution on that massive number of $152 trillion, uh, which is about 225% of global GDP, because about two-thirds of that is corporate debt, household debts, and a third is sovereign debt. And not all countries are in the same position. Uh, some countries are heavily indebted, and some of that debt is held by domestic uh, holders, which also is a particular problematic, uh, a particular uh, situation. So we can't just cry fool and say, oh, right. this is a huge, huge debt around the world. We need to be country-specific. Uh, but there is an issue of the debt burden, and there is an issue of what monetary policy uh, can be conducted on its own, as has been the case for too long, which is the reason why we're calling for the three-pronged approach, monetary, fiscal, structural reforms, and they have to come together. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more 
at findyourindependentadvisor.com.